the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com. That's where you get podcasts of this show. You can also get them at uh, iTunes, Spotify, and uh, on social media, at Dan Prof Show, both on Facebook and Twitter, at Prof Dan, on Instagram. Uh, let's begin with the, the reopening, the reopenings that are occurring around the country, varying degrees uh, with different strictures. The response from the uh, D.C. press corps to the states that are moving with alacrity to substantially reopen against the backdrop of their response, which I think is nicely encapsulated by this piece in the week theweek.com, Jeff Spross, Republicans literally want to work Americans to death. That's the response to the reopening in which he says, uh, among other things, that um, the response has been irresponsible and incompetent to this point, even with respect to getting tests, getting masks and getting ventilators to the country at large. Irresponsible and incompetent bedlam bedlam is the phrase that he used. That uh, differs substantially with what I heard from Democrat Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey at the White House yesterday. In our hour of need, whether it was ventilators, the Army Corps building out capacity, FEMA uh, with our testing sites, and and a big part of our ability to reopen as fast as we all want to is to rapidly expand testing. And you all literally in the here and now this week are helping us in a big way uh, to at least, uh, I, I would expect by the end of May, thanks to you and your team's help, we'll be able to at least double, and I hope more than double, our testing capabilities. And, and because of that, that will allow us to much more aggressively and responsibly do the reopening that we all need to do. And Phil, how do we do on ventilators as an example where you were really in, yeah. you needed them badly? Yeah, we, we got them. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. And, and I'm told, uh, that we were the number one reci- state recipient of ventilators. Um, and th- this was, you know, we were at the edge, and this is life or death stuff, and we got them, and we we're forever thankful for that. And on testing, uh, I think what we're actually finding is that uh, it's not about uh, getting testing and testing capacity out onto the hustings. It is a matter of um, having more testing than people that are being tested. In other words, you're not doing the random testing. You're still in the mode of people who are presenting symptoms. So you're not having the mass testing that these labs that have been stood up and these tests that have been distributed, the Abbott generated tests and others are capable of producing and getting processed. For more on uh, this aspect of the topic with respect to reopening, we're pleased to be joined again by John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He is the grumpy economist, John Cochran.blogspot.com for his musings. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
It's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Uh, what about that? The uh, uh, the reopening is uh, just Republicans who want to work Americans to death. <laughs> well, uh, I think uh, making this partisan is a bad idea. Um, what's, it's not about working Americans to death. It's about allowing them to work. There's this charming idea that we can all take a six-month vacation. Nobody works. The government prints money to pay all our bills. It kind of forgets about where does stuff come from. Uh, this is an economic catastrophe. It's kind of obvious, uh, sensible people, both left and right. We've got to reopen smart, get the economy going in such a way, but in such a way that you don't spread the disease at work. And we need a lot more of that, and we need it fast. The reopening smart, I mean, that's really the conversation. It's not uh, the way that it's being set up by so many in the press corps as, you know, willy-nilly, reckless reopening, to flip the switch, and everything goes back to pre-COVID-19, or you know, imprisoned in place in perpetuity until there's no more discernible cases. I mean, that, that's just a silly conversation. And it, I think it actually fairly characterizes a lot of the dialogue you're seeing, seeing on cable news, which is disappointing. Um, so so to uh, the better conversation about reopening smart and with respect to what I was saying about uh, testing and capacity versus essentially protocol or processing do you see that as an as the issue too? It's not a capacity issue. It's a it's a uh, uh, implementation issue. At, at this point, right? It was a capacity issue. The remarkable snafus of our government in, in getting testing going, and, and I don't not the high levels, but the low level bureaucracy has been really kind of a disaster here. The FDA and the CDC, but now we got the test, and what are you going to do with them? And here, uh, this isn't about uh, federal stuff. It's about local public health. The way you reopen is, first of all, businesses have to follow some protocols. But next, you substitute good public health to keep the disease from going. And that means random testing. That means knowing where it is. That means uh, contact tracing, isolating where it is, isolating the people who are vulnerable and have it. That is not just about tests. That's about the bureaucracy that knows how to use the tests, and they better get that going fast. Well, and here's the thing, too. You sort of were intimating it. Employers have every reason to make their workplaces uh, as safe as they can be because they want their employees to be as well as feel safe in order to come back to work and work. Proprietors have every incentive to make their places of business, if they're a retail business, safe and make people feel safe because that's the way you get and keep customers. This idea that only the government or only the shutdown artists are concerned about keeping everyone safe. All the incentives are for uh, business people to keep people safe, too. Uh, that's absolutely right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just it's just silly. I just the conversation and they, these statements that go on challenge like there's one group of people who is, are interested in uh, keeping people safe and saving lives and other people, another group of people who, who are not. And it's just absurd. Uh, yeah. So unfortunately, in contemporary America, too much gets uh, wound up into partisan politics and everything gets thrown to feet as, as the president. As if, uh, you know, the president personally can figure out the protocol for reopening a hardware store in Santa Clara County. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not how it works. Speaking of um, speaking of California, you uh, observed uh, the Santa Clara study that was co-authored in part by uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, uh, Andrew Bogan, who we've spoken with on the show as well, and, and other antibody studies from around the country. Santa Clara, the L.A. County USC one, the New York one. There's one in uh, Wausau, France as well. All, all of them suggest something we thought to be true to varying degrees, which is that uh, the infection is much more prevalent than the case, the, the, the case data uh, indicates, and thus um, 
herd immunity is the play, whether we get there uh, through the gradual reopening or we do a lockdown for 12 to 18 months like Zeke Emanuel wants to do and wait for a vaccine. Uh, I don't think it's that easy. Uh, so um, for your listeners, the, the news is there's lots more people out there that have had the disease without symptoms than we knew. There's good news in that. That means the death rate is lower than we thought. Right. There's bad news in that. That means this thing is much more infectious than we thought. It spreads faster than we thought. And there's also bad news in that uh, we're not anywhere close to herd immunity. You, you need to get something like more than half of the people having had it before it kind of uh, drops away of its own. Uh, we're not close to that anywhere. Uh, if we want to just wait for herd immunity, this thing will be with us for months and months and months, maybe years, uh, and many, many more people will, in fact, get uh, horribly sick and die from it. So I, I think the play has to be to uh, use this economic panic button. This isn't how you're supposed to stop things, by shutting down businesses but at least get it back under control and then a serious public health intervention to try and get rid of it before we all get it. And, and a small number die and many more have horrible complications from it. Right. But it, it, it's just understanding um, the uh, scale of this, as you were suggesting, not that we're near herd immunity, but the, the play ultimately is herd immunity one way or the other. And uh, and, and so perhaps uh, in terms of reopening and reopening sensibly, as you were suggesting, the idea is keep uh, people who are older and who have underlying conditions, keep them shelter in place, protect those individuals and allow the younger and the healthier to return to school and or work, much as we've seen in uh, Sweden in particular. But now, actually, what we're seeing in a number of other Western countries uh, with respect to reopening of uh, elementary schools, for example. Yeah. Now, some of the reopening may just be the hard fact that uh, uh, people are not going to put up with their livelihoods being completely destroyed while there's still a small number of cases around. Yes. Um, so so if we're, the key now is to avoid the second wave in the summer and the fall. If we just if we don't reopen smart enough and don't have that public health, you need to tamp out the embers. It's like the forest fire, right? Well, we got the, the fire isn't spreading, but there's lots of these little embers and you need not just testing. Now we have labs that have the capacity to test and they're sitting around unused because no one is doing the random testing, the data collection. You know, my friend Bhattacharya, you mentioned, uh, ran a study. It got some criticism and so forth. But with our government spending a trillion dollars a month, why are they not doing uh, that kind of study routinely? Why does, you know, a, a creative guy from Stanford have to hack the damn thing together uh, rather than have random testing so we know where it is? Fair question. Uh, when we come back with John Cochran, I want to talk about another sector of reopening, and that's higher education. More with John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with John Cochran. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. And uh, John, uh, inside higher education, uh, suggesting that uh, four-year colleges may face a loss of up to 20% in fall enrollment, according to a higher education research and marketing company. 
and uh, university finances, uh, well, many universities, their finances are, are quite precarious and uh, certainly would become much more so if, you, if they see a 20% fall off in their student body. Mitch uh, Daniels over at Purdue has a plan to reopen uh, Purdue's campus in the fall. That's what he's moving towards. But many are uh, sort of uh, up in the air about uh, campus life in 2020. Actually, there's an Atlantic piece that suggests what would uh, higher education look like if uh, colleges don't reopen until 2021. And you've written a little bit about university finances as well. Yes, I have. Um, uh, so universities are a uh, it's a business model, sort of like restaurant, bar and airline that is pretty susceptible to um, this uh, to, to a pandemic outbreak, especially the universities that are dependent on tuition on uh, foreign students and out of state students coming in and living in dorms. It's going to be very hard to reopen. Uh, Mitch Daniels is, uh, is really uh, thinking far forward. He's got a set of protocols about how he wants to be able to keep Purdue going. Uh, every other one is sort of thinking, oh, what are we going to do in the fall? Right. And and so um, here's the thing about it. And you, you referenced this in, in your piece as well. I think you reference uh, uh, Stanford's president's observations, actually. Yeah, and there's a study uh, uh, out of uh, that was uh, featured in the American Economic Review on this topic as well, asking the question, studying the question, do American do parents value school effectiveness? And uh, it turns out, yeah, they value school effectiveness, but they also really value uh, status, school status. And by that, I also include the social connectivity that comes with uh, going to an elite school, making the right connections, being in the right milieu, setting yourself on the right course professionally and interpersonally. And that really is under threat in a remote learning sort of environment that paradigm and it's also going to be difficult to charge 50 and 60 thousand dollars a year at these elite schools if you're not getting that benefit because both parents and students place a premium on that which is why there's so much demand for those schools with elite reputations yeah uh, now that's not going to go away fast uh, you know you've been getting status out of university since about 1320 i think yeah, okay yeah, uh, all right all right <laughs> And uh, don't knock it. Um, getting to know a group of really smart uh, people who are going to be your business contacts in the rest of your life. I mean, I work for Stanford, so this is my ad. Uh, no, no, I get University of Chicago, where I used to work. <laughs> yeah, I get. You know, hey, look. I mean, just I look. I went to Northwestern, and and what I always say to is like, is the is the you know generic humanities professor at Northwestern so much better than the generic humanities professor at University of Illinois State School? No, not really. Um, you know, so there's standouts in every discipline, uh, but they're, they're spread out. But but the, the the people that you go to school with, it, it is a different student body population. And there is a premium for, with that student body population. And so you pay a premium for access to it. That's a real thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But I'm just trying to describe how that impacts the future economics of, of universities. Now, I think universities, like any uh, very subsidized, non-competitive business, have grown kind of fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the humanities. Uh, they've gone off on a lunatic uh, fringe, and uh, students aren't really taking their classes anymore. So I think uh, a little crisis is sometimes a useful thing to, for institutions to sit down and cut the fat and figure out what are we really good for here. Most schools, let's remember, are, you know, most people don't go to fancy private schools that charge an enormous amount of tuition. Uh, most schools are, are uh, state schools and, and um, uh, private schools where you do go to actually learn something, 
and people do actually learn something there. And my advice to students are, you know, take a lot of science and math. You know, <laughs> that's a very useful thing to do uh, when when you're young. Uh, so there is some actual learning that goes on in in, in a lot of schools. It's an important thing to do, uh, but there will be a shakeout. And and uh, the shakeout. I mean, when you you hear the uh, the that uh, survey research firm suggest twenty uh, percent. Uh, decline in higher education enrollment is that something that you see as possible and it, it would that be uh, sort of a, a um, you know a, a a pruning event that wouldn't be all that bad for a higher education or do you see that as something that is uh, much more concerning well let's let everything here we got to separate the short run and the long run so there's the adaptation to the uh, uh, pandemic that's going on in the next you know no more than a year or two and then I think we're going to lot, lots of business models are going to be changed permanently. So how much of universities will be changed? Um, a lot of now this is going to depend on which ones. There's a lot of universities who, for example, they live off of foreign students coming in from China. Yeah, I happen to think that's a great thing. That's an export. That's a great export that America has. We ex, uh, they pay us a lot of money and we export ideas. Uh, they go home having learned something about freedom, democracy, and capitalism and so forth. But uh, that business model looks like it's in doubt for the future. I also want to add, so where universities got into trouble, there's a morality tale in all this. Why is so much of America in so much trouble that a couple months shutdown is is destroying the economy? Uh, We got into this once again. Uh, Too many businesses are in way too much debt and don't have the resilience to get through bad times. And uh, the amount that we're replaying all of the mistakes of 2008 is kind of shocking. Uh, universities stand out there in 2008. Um, even the big private universities got into horrible financial trouble despite enormous endowments. Why? Well, there's a lot of debt and a lot of uh, financial uh, stuff going on. Uh, why are the airlines in trouble? Well, because they borrowed a whole lot of money and now they can't make their debt payments. Uh, why are governments in trouble like Chicago's and Illinois? Well, they borrowed a whole lot of money and now we're in trouble once again. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to this as well, since you brought up, uh, you know, Chinese nationals coming over here to higher education and that model, um, the China model generally, uh, since you're uh, also an economist. Uh, this piece in CNN, which is just uh, remarkable, really, Jack Griffiths is the author. The crisis has highlighted the benefits of a strong government and centralized planning while exposing the limitations of private industry to respond quickly, particularly in the healthcare sector. He's uh, suggesting the unseen benefits of the Chinese model of governance. Uh, I would disagree heartily with that. What we're seeing here, this is China's Chernobyl. Uh, Centralized planning also leads to shutting people up. So the uh, horrendous lying they were doing about about what was going on. And now their own citizens know that their uh, government's been lying the whole time. Uh, so they can they can lock people down in ways America would find absolutely atrocious, uh, but that's not helping them. And what's saving us is not our the centralized parts of our government, which are still uh, kind of running around in panic. Uh, look at the remarkable. You, you mentioned businesses. Uh, where do you see good uh, protocols for how to how to run things coming out of? Well, the airlines quickly. Uh, adapted to let's wipe things down, let's put people's masks on long before the government told them to do it. And where are the drugs coming from? Where is the new test coming from? All that's coming out of uh, out of the, the still vibrant uh, private part of the U.S. 
He is John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, the grumpy economist. John Cochran, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. I love a rainy night. I love to hear the thunder. Watch the light. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Few have been more dogged on bumping the pronouncements and predictions of polls and pundits up against the data than Alex Berenson. Pretty good alliteration, by the way, if I do say so myself. Uh, He's a former New York Times reporter and the author of Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. That's the topic we've previously spoken with him about, but we're going to talk COVID-19 with him. Before we do that, though, I wanted to uh, take a call because one of the things Berenson tweeted out this week was the uh, texts, tweets, emails he gets from all over the country. Nowhere are they more angry and panicked than from Illinois. Golly, why would that be? Uh, maybe John from Bucktown can help us. Hey, Dan. We're uh, calling in to uh, say goodbye, my wife and I. We're about to ship off to uh, Wisconsin next week. Why, uh, why are you leaving? Uh, it's just uh, the taxes are killing us, and uh, we saw the value of our house continue to decline. We feel uh, very fortunate. We were able to sell our house just before the virus hit, God knows what this is going to do to Chicago and Illinois' finances, but it's not going to be pretty. Well, happy trails, John. Thanks for calling in and sharing your story. And by the way, this is how bad it is in Illinois. I mean, Wisconsin is not a low-tax state. And yet, uh, since 2010, there's something like 120,000 Illinoisans. Just Wisconsin, that's the number of Illinoisans, as we continue six years running to lead the nation in out-migration. So there's probably a reason why uh, the uh, tone and content that Berenson is receiving from Illinois residents is uh, heightened relative to everywhere else in the country. Because, again, before COVID-19, as John was telling us, highest state and local tax burden in the country, the greatest percentage of residents who want to leave their state of any state in the nation, 50 percent, the number one reason cited taxes. Where do people understand taxes are going to go after this? Up. It's a fairly uh, linear equation. For uh, more on all of this, we're pleased to now be joined by Alex Berenson. And Alex, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting. If you think about New York or California, you know, or states that are, that are sort of like Illinois, you know, have big cities, um, you know, a, a fair amount of urban poverty. But New York and California have, you know, very big populations of really high earners. So they can sort of make it work a little bit better. Not that the taxes aren't high. But, you know, Illinois, I know, you know, I know it has a financial district and I know it has some wealthy people, but it, it doesn't have that base that New York and California can really draw on. Although even in New York, people are fleeing, you know, wealthy people are moving to Florida and stuff like that. So I, I think one of the things, the, the lockdown states are going to have a real structural problem going forward. If, and the longer this lasts, the worse it's going to get for them. But, yeah, the tone from Illinois is... People are people are really upset, and you know, people. It's, it's people who feel that they, a, it's people who feel that that they're going to lose everything. They're going to lose the businesses that they've started, and you know, and put their lives into. B, 
Pritzker, I mean, people just can't stand him. And, uh, you know, I know that he was elected and, you know, in a, and, but, but they feel he's, he's, he was elected fairly recently, but the, the people really can't stand him in a way that I think Cuomo or Newsom or even uh, Whitmer don't, don't really uh, – uh, generate the same kind of anger that well, but, does, I guess, because he's so wealthy, is it, or well, because he sent his family to Florida? Or? Well, I, I'm sorry, but I have to reject the premise. Um, oh. Much like Whitmer. Whitmer, by the way, just extended her locked-in-prison-in-your-home order to May 28th. Um, we'll see how that redounds to her benefit. Um, Pritzker, statewide approval rating, 69%. All, all of that's, all of these shut, but 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 here here's the thing, Alex. All of these uh, lockdown politicians who are in lockdown or and bust mode, they don't care. Yes. Lockdown and yeah. bust mode, um, they are getting nothing but political benefit from it, and it's mostly driven by their urban populations with the attended suburban populations in the population centers of the state. Whether it's uh, in Michigan with Whitmer, uh, Cuomo, Pritzker. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good point. It's a fair point. You know, I don't reject data. And you're right. The polls have shown pretty strong support, although it's decreasing. It's still pretty strong support for the lockdown. So so I guess it is true that the people who I hear from and who you hear from are not representative. But but there are still a lot of them. And I think there are more and more. But, you know, you make a fair point. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, look, and, and by the way, this has shot up over the last uh, 30 days for all of these politicians very quickly. It can shoot down very quickly, too, when more and more people get uh, beyond their fear and start taking a harder look at their bank accounts and their economic prospects going forward and perhaps realize there have been some overreaches here. Yes, yes. And by the way, I tend not to talk about the politics that much. I'm much more interested in the, you know, in the data and the right. public health. stuff. But, but because the lockdowns do continue to stretch on in the absence of real data to support them, I've, I've gotten more you know, attuned to the politics, I would say. When we come back, I want to talk to you about retiring the models and relying on real-world data with matters like hospital bed occupancy. More with Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter and author of Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And I wanted to uh, get to real-world data versus the models and this uh, dynamic we're in, as Stanford's John Ioannidis observed, where incredibly, despite real-world data, you still have a lot of people arguing the models. Uh, What do you uh, see going on with the real-world data on matters like hospital bed occupancy? Well, I don't I don't look at models. I look at what's really happening in terms of hospital beds, hospitalizations, the fatality rate that we now have, the number of positive tests, the number of positive antibody tests. It's much better to look at what's really happening because the models look, it's very hard to predict the future in general. And to try to predict the future of this, the people who, you know, who spent their lives trying to create models have done a terrible job. Let's be clear, they've done a terrible job. But three or four weeks ago, and this continues to be true today, but three or four weeks ago, the most important indicator was hospitalization and what was happening in the hospitals. And the hospitals, now I will even include New York in this, the hospitals are beginning to empty out even in New York. Everywhere else, 
the hospitals are empty. The hospital system is under incredible strain right now, but it's financial strain because our hospital system is very, very expensive to run and depends on elective surgeries, which is where the profits come to survive. And those surgeries have effectively gone away. So actually yesterday, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is not a single hospital, it's a large regional hospital system that has, uh, believe it or not, 87,000 employees. It's comparable in size to some of the biggest private hospital chains in the United States. Basically just said, you know what? We don't care about the lockdown order anymore. We're going to get back to elective surgeries. And they're so powerful in the state of Pennsylvania that the state couldn't do anything about it. So it just basically agreed. Yeah, right. I mean, so this is one of the the idea that some are arguing this is a testament to the need for central planning. I mean, you had one of the most ridiculous pieces I've ever read by this James Griffiths guy at CNN lauding the uh, command control Chinese communists for, you know, that, look, see, they could respond quicker and see they could do this quicker and they could do this better through centralized control. If only we had more of that, essentially what he's saying. And in point of fact, the command control and the distribution of resources, the allocation of resources through centralized government control has been a travesty is now creating the situation they were trying to avoid, which was overwhelming our hospitals. And it, it's amazing that this it, this hasn't required years to happen, right? This has happened in a matter of weeks. It, it is happening so fast, I think, you know, and the media is so focused on all the wrong things. Uh, you know, they're focused on every 30-year-old. And look, it's a tragedy when anybody dies of COVID or anything else. But, you know, when you spend three quarters of your time worrying about the the handful of people under, you know, 35 or, or you know, or 30, certainly, who, who died of this, you don't, you're missing what's really going on. The collapse, the rather quick collapse of our hospital system, the rather quick collapse of our energy supply system. Okay, the fact that oil was trading at a negative price for the sort of immediate delivery a week ago is a really bad sign. What it means is that all the oil storage we have in the United States is either full or contracted. And what that means is very, very soon, if not already, wells are going to be shut down. And that's going to be hard to fix when refineries go offline. It's hard to fix. We are doing damage in a way that no one is paying any attention to. But let me just go back to the medical issue for a second. Of We're talking about hospitals. Okay, what's the most important thing right now? What's the thing you're hearing the most about right now? Tests. We need more tests. You hear it over and over and over again. Guess what? We have too much testing capacity right now. That's the reality. People are not symptomatic, and they're not getting tested. The city of Los Angeles a couple of days ago said they would offer free testing to anybody in the city, no symptoms required, because they have more tests than people who want to be tested. So this notion that we need to test everybody and track everybody, it's, it appears to be completely unfounded in reality. The fact is, there are many more people who've had this and recovered than the number of active infections uh, figures shows, which means that it's much less dangerous to most people than it is being said to be. Uh, sticking in uh, California for the moment and going back to uh, the uh, hospital bed occupancy, which used to be important and isn't anymore, and, <laughs> and the high marks that Gavin Newsom has gotten for how he's managed uh, the situation in California, Elon Musk, uh, concurrent with his William Wallace moment the other day about giving people yep. their GD freedom back, he posted a graph about hospitalizations, the uh, predictions, the April 1st prediction by Newsom, the April 10th prediction yep. by Newsom, uh, hospitalizations going up at a 45-degree angle, 50,000 by May 1, April 1, yep. uh, 20,000 by May 1, April 10. The actual data from the end of March to present is a 
horizontal line at about 5,000. Yep. It's an incredible graph. It's the same graph for Florida. DeSantis, the governor of Florida, actually did the same graph for Florida because he's, you know, he's a Republican, so he's, he's going to do it himself. But, yeah, the projections are so far off and have been so far off, it's almost comical. But, you know, the punchline, I said a couple weeks ago, the punchline is 10 million unemployed. Now the punchline is 30 million unemployed. What we have done and what we are continuing to do is the greatest public policy mistake since the Civil War. I mean, you, you pick the Great Depression. It's, it's certainly the worst thing in any of our lifetimes. Is that why the New York Times does a uh, front page pictorial on the faces of COVID-19, those who have died of COVID-19? Because if you can't win on the substance of the argument, you you engage in sentimentality. I, I mean, it is as if sometimes that no one ever died before this virus was here. Again, this does kill people. Let's be clear. Certainly, if you're older, you know, in the United States, the most recent CDC numbers, which are a little bit have a little bit of a lag, so they say 35,000 deaths. That that's lower than the, the current reported numbers. Of those, 10,000 of those people are 85 and over, and another 10,000 are 75 and older. So the mortality here is very very skewed to people who are older and who in many cases would have had only a few weeks or a lot or, or months of life yet left. The best estimates are that about half to two-thirds of people who die of COVID would have died by the end of the year anyway. The, the media, why they don't want to paint an accurate picture of who's really getting sick here and what we really ought to be doing, which is trying to protect people in nursing homes, trying to you know protect people in hospitals, not discouraging people who might have a lot of risk from taking public transportation. There are things we can do that are totally reasonable and would help with this and would help delay the spread a little bit until we can get better treatments. We're not doing those. I don't know why, but we're trying to shut the, I mean, we have shut the whole country and the effects have been horrible. He is Alex Berenson. He's a former New York Times reporter. He's the author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And you want to follow him, Alex Berenson, B-E-R-E-N-S-O-N, Alex Berenson, on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, because uh, daily uh, daily uh, bouncing up, as I said, the predictions and pronouncements against the, the data and the evidence. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And the reopening necessarily includes houses of worship. And it's not happening without incident, we'll say, in northwestern Illinois, a small town called Lena, the uh, pastor of the beloved church, has filed a lawsuit by Thomas More Society on behalf of his church with respect to being able to reopen his church. Pastor Steve Castle saying, along with uh, Thomas More Senior Counsel Peter Breen, keeping liquor stores open but indefinitely shutting down churches and religious ministries violates our Constitution and our most basic liberties. If the liquor stores are essential, so are the churches. And this is consistent with some of the concerns that have been expressed by Attorney General Barr as well. Uh, Knox County, Tennessee, for example, you know, part of this is watching the reopening and the requirements that are involved, some of the new requirements. I don't just mean guidelines. I mean, requirements that are being imposed even during a reopening like is happening in Tennessee. You have to be mindful. The Knox County Health Department saying no communion, no hymnals, no Bibles at mass at church service. 
a, a church service without a Bible, without uh, the sacrament of communion. Right. So as I said, be mindful and be ready to fight. I, I go back to what our friend Scott McKay said the other day on this show. You're going to have to fight these people to get your life back. Some good news on the faith front, though, I just wanted to share because we mentioned the polling earlier this week that had some bad news about uh, all-time highs in people's wanting the federal government to do more. Not since 9-11 have we seen these numbers, a full 50 percent of Americans wanting the federal government to do more than they're already doing. That's saying a lot considering uh, $8 trillion in spending, not to mention all of the guidelines that have been advanced to the states and localities that we've been discussing from the federal level to the state and local level. But on the faith front, Pew Research finds 24 percent of all U.S. adults have said their faith has grown stronger through this COVID-19 outbreak. You know, it's just interesting looking at some of the different denominations, Protestants, 38 percent overall, Christian, 35 percent overall, Catholic, 27 percent overall. Faith has grown stronger among among the faithful. The faith has grown stronger. So in terms of the prospect, perhaps, of more people making a service, uh, making mass part of their weekly ritual, maybe this will be something that does strengthen the church as people have seen their faith strengthen and are going to be anxious to get back to you know more faithful living, more engagement with their uh, house of worship and uh, those who preside over it. A uh, corresponding that, uh, something you can do while perhaps your church is shut down, Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. It's a documentary which presents convincing evidence the biblical account of the Exodus is true. The investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney journeyed to Egypt, Europe, throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question— Did the stories, like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. There's three movies in the series, Exodus, The Moses Controversy, and The Red Sea Miracle. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and the others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. They aren't true. This never happened. That's what uh, Joe Biden said about Tara Reid's sexual assault allegations against him. And uh, yesterday, Nancy Pelosi uh, said, I'm a big fan of the Me Too movement, of course, but Joe Biden is Joe Biden. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Well, let, let me just say, I, I respect your question, and I don't need a, a lecture or a speech. Here's the thing. Oh, testy. I have a complete respect for the whole Me Too movement. I have four daughters and one son, and uh, there's a lot of excitement around the idea that women will be heard and be listened to. There is also due process, and uh, the fact that Joe Biden is Joe Biden— uh, we, there's been statements from his campaign, or not his campaign, but his former employees who ran his offices and the rest, that there was never any record 
of this. There was never any record. And that uh, nobody ever came forward or nobody ever came forward to say something about it apart from the principal involved. I am so proud. The happiest day for me this week was to support Joe Biden for president of the United States. He's a person of great integrity. Nice pivot. It's uh, it's interesting that uh, those of us who argued about the normative value of due process when investigating a complaint of this magnitude, whether it's you know, for so outside of a court of law, I should say, just the normative, the idea that due process is sort of who we are as a free people. You take a serious allegation seriously, but you got to look into them before, say, you're a member of the press corps and you decide to try to ruin somebody's reputation or otherwise destroy their lives. Got to follow up. Got to make sure you know what you're talking about. Got to have evidence to support the claim in order to report it or advance it. So people were saying that when it came to uh, Brett Kavanaugh and others. And we're saying at the time, wait till it turns on them and it's somebody that they like, somebody that's politically sensitive. You're going to hear we need due process. Oh, of course, I'm for this. And of course, you have to take and of course, women have to be hurt and all that. But we need due process. Well, Where was the due process normatively when The New York Times ran the Julie Swetnick allegations against Brett Kavanaugh without corroboration? So so the standard is the issue. And uh, oh, by the way, it is worth noting and credit to them. Uh, individuals like Crystal Ball, formerly of MSNBC, now uh, anchors a Hill dot com show, as well as uh, Peter Beinart, as well as uh, the Rachel Maddow impersonator on MSNBC, the guy, Chris Hayes, saying that uh, the standard that we applied previously has to be applied here. Peter Beinart saying Joe Biden's Senate office should release whatever papers they may have that could be relevant to this investigation or this look, see at these allegations. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks so much for joining us again. So uh, it's not just going to be waved off, I, I, it seems to me, with, uh, you know, the allegations aren't true statement by Joe Biden. No, uh, it's pretty definitive. Uh, and for him to come out and say he's urging the National Archives or giving them the wave to release any public documents of a complaint suggests to me that they've gone through and tried to find a complaint and maybe didn't. But um, but perhaps uh, even just by doing that, uh, that gives you another element for the Biden people to say it didn't happen. Now, Tara Reid will have her say and uh, people will judge you know, her story. And obviously she has more um, dots on the chronological timeline than Christine Blasey Ford did in the Kavanaugh case. But I think for us, uh, the Kavanaugh handling of it shouldn't be the gold standard. Um, it, it should be what we don't do Clearly. <laughs> as far as yeah. covering it. I will say that uh, to Joe Scarborough's credit, uh, he brought up a, a quote from Biden in 2018 in which Biden said, uh, for a woman to come forward in the glaring lights of focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real, whether or not she forgets the facts, whether or not it's it's been made worse or better over time. But nobody fails to understand that this is like jumping into a cauldron. And to Joe Scarborough's credit, he brought that quote up uh, this morning. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me this is un- unless there is uh, some witness to the alleged events that uh, is heretofore been silent and Tara Reid hasn't identified as anybody potentially witnessing what she said occurred, then this just becomes, yeah, this happened to me. And I told a bunch of people, including my mom, and I talked about it over the years, but it's still just her against him in terms of their of their respective words. And so it's, it seems to me that uh, this is more a commentary on the quality of uh, journalism inside the Beltway and on the eastern seaboard than it is uh, potentially anything that has a lasting impact on Biden's candidacy uh, with the caveat, unless other women come forward to allege similar things. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the disparity between coverage of Kavanaugh and and this is really where the most hypocrisy is. And also some of the Democratic senators like Kirsten Gillibrand, um, who came out and said 100 percent that she's for Christine Blasey Ford and and Swetnick and all those allegations and then pushed to have her colleague Al Franken removed from the Senate. Uh, which really set off some Democrats, um, you know, now she's 100 percent with Joe Biden. So it's that disparity of comments or coverage that I think the story is. I'm not sure we're going to get to the ground truth of what exactly did or didn't happen with Tara Reid. And, and just on that score with media, I mean, I have to go back to this Dean Baquet interview with, uh, with that Ben Smith did for The New York Times a couple of weeks ago. That is just a remarkable interview for somebody with the stature of Dean Becquet, the executive editor of The New York Times, in in the media. And I think it's been underreported what he had to say because his answers to questions about the disparity in the coverage and why didn't The New York Times pick up this story and give it an airing for three weeks after the allegations resurfaced, even as TheHill.com is doing it and some of these other outlets, his answers were were laughable. Oh, yeah, they were jarring. I mean, in part, he said, well, Greg Kavanaugh was in the spotlight and was a public uh, figure in the middle of this hearing uh, in the national consciousness. And I mean, what is a presidential nominee? (laughs) Right. Uh, And and again, as I mentioned uh, before uh, you came on to Julie Swetnick, gave the idea, well, we needed to give it time to to properly lay the foundation for our readers and understanding who Tara Reid is because people wouldn't know her name. Who knew who Julie Swetnick was? And you went with an uncorroborated allegation you reported the day of. Right. And, you know, a number of those women have have walked things back, um, which we don't hear a lot about. But, again, you know, that's the most recent of the public allegations, but um, it's not one that we should use as a gold standard at all. Speaking of underreporting, why the underreporting on Jared Polis in Colorado and Gina Raimondo in Rhode Island moving to uh, end their lockdowns in their respective states and, and, and reopen? I mean, it is amazing. You would think that Brian Kemp is alone in Georgia. He's not. And there's obviously concern, and these governors are making decisions based on what they see on the ground and uh, what they're hearing from the business community as well. Uh, but there's no focus on some of those Democratic states, and that's really interesting. Has the task force been officially disbanded? Uh, we're done with task force briefings now. Uh, guidelines are not going to be reintroduced because Trump is essentially leaving it to the states as they're following them even as they reopen or repurposing them even as they open. we done with that? No. 
No, no. I think there'll be a more task force uh, briefings as when he feels like it. Yesterday was just answering questions from reporters, but he did it. I think that there it'll shift to this reopen uh, commission that includes you know CEOs and people from around the country as well as lawmakers uh, and people in his cabinet. And we're going to ask the president a lot about all of this uh, this weekend in the town hall uh, from the Lincoln Memorial. Right, right, right. Uh, seven to seven to nine p.m. live on Fox. Martha McCallum and I will um, will have another town hall, virtual town hall, but questions from around the country, and we'll be live um, at the Lincoln Memorial. He is a Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time during the week, of course. Number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, his latest Three Days uh, book. Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. And again, as you just mentioned, this Sunday night, 7 to 9 p.m., Trump Town Hall with Brett and Martha McCallum live from the Lincoln Memorial. Good stuff. Thanks for the, uh, joining us, Brett. Appreciate it. You bet. Have a good one. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And, uh, you know, this uh, classic uh, drop from South Park keeps reverberating through my head. You will respect my authority. Yeah, I don't know why I can't get carbon out of my head, but this is a substantive explanation, perhaps, that goes to the question. Uh, this from actually a state senator in Illinois, a friend of mine, Dan McConkey, Republican from the suburbs, writing the Wall Street Journal. In 41 states, there is little or no legislative input on gubernatorial state of emergency proclamations. Half of those legislatures lack the ability to block any exercise of governor's, of the, uh, uh, governor's power when done in the name of an emergency. That leaves elected representatives unable to defend their constituents against executive overreach. Nineteen states, including Illinois, in fact, where an emergency declaration closes a private business, restricts commerce, limits the free movement of residents, has no limits at all. Only two states, Georgia and Oklahoma, require any affirmative action of the legislature to approve the governor's initial declaration. Seven others require approval of subsequent extensions after an emergency declaration, the initial one has expired. So part of uh, the rethinking post COVID-19 is uh, yay for federalism. But that doesn't mean that uh, states and even localities are immune from from review of how the uh, particularly at the state level, the co-equal branches of government operate at the state level, just as we've had conversations about how the co-equal branches of government operate at the federal level for more on this, as well as uh, I definitely want to get to this topic, our snitch culture, uh, the burgeoning snitch culture. Pleased to be joined again by John Daniel Davidson, political editor at The Federalist, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly. John Daniel Davidson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What about that? What about that issue that, you know, just because you're uh, deferring to the states doesn't mean the states are in uh, a great position to um, uh, provide any more balanced leadership than the federal government necessarily. Absolutely. That's part of the deal with federalism uh, is that you're going to get a whole bunch of different results across the 50 states and even within the states between mayors and county commissioners 
uh, making different uh, proclamations and emergency orders. One of the beauties of uh, being in Texas, where I live, is that the governor's orders supersede all the orders of mayors and county commissioners, so we don't have rogue mayors uh, issuing really draconian orders for lockdowns that go beyond what the governor has declared. But, you know, in other states, that's not the case. Mayors are allowed to go further, and and many of them have, as we've seen. Well, the other uh, uh, interesting model, though, is in Oklahoma, where Governor Kevin Stitt has moved to open up Oklahoma. But he's also provided uh, deference rather than dictation to mayors. Hey, a mayor of Norman, Oklahoma, you don't want to open up as fast as uh, we're allowing other parts of the state to open up, then don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there's something to be said for that approach as well. Uh, and, and the good thing about that approach, even though you're, you're going to have, you know, uh, mayors and county commissioners that try to impose sort of, a, you know, little authoritarian rules like fining people hundreds or a thousand dollars for not wearing a mask when they step out their front door. Uh, you do have the ability at the local level to hold your leaders more accountable. You know, this is the principle of subsidiarity, and it's and it's one of the reasons why uh, our founders created a federalist system is is that you can exercise uh, your right as a voter, as a democratic citizen on the local level with a mayor or with your county much better than you can at the national level or even the state level. Uh, you wrote about uh, some of the governors, uh, Democrat governors, uh, some are opening up much to the uh, quiet response from the D.C. press corps, the polices and the Ramondas of the world. But with the respect with the respect, excuse me, to uh, say Roy Cooper, North Carolina or Steve Sisolak in Nevada, it's curious they're so resistant to move towards reopening, so committed to holding fast with uh, their more draconian brethren. It's a complete goalpost shift for them. The whole reason that we went on lockdowns, we were told at the time, the whole reason we had massive business closures and that tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs was not to stop the spread of the virus. It was to slow the spread of the virus so our hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed, so our emergency rooms wouldn't be full of COVID-19 patients uh, and and hospitals and doctors wouldn't be able to treat anybody else. So that hasn't happened or or it's worked. Right. We slowed the spread. Hospitals aren't overwhelmed. They were able to get up to up, you know, increase their capacity, get more ventilators and protective gear. And so that works. So now what's the reason to keep us on lockdown? It, it, it's lockdowns are not going to solve this crisis. We're not going to to stop the virus by staying in our homes. So I I think it's interesting that some of these governors and some of these mayors, you know, given a little bit of this kind of like dictatorial power, are hesitant to give it up. And they don't have a good reason now for why they don't want to open back up. I also wanted to have you address the snitch culture. I mean, we've seen this in various ways. We've seen PSAs from de Blasio in New York City telling people to snitch on their neighbors. We've seen a hotline set up by the governor of Kentucky Uh, here in suburban Chicago. Just as an example, one community posted on their website, uh, River Forest, Illinois, this handy dandy COVID-19 violation reporting form where, you you know, you can uh, rat out a business or a contract or an individual group not wearing a mask or a cloth covering. You just, you know, say say what you observe, provide your name and phone number, and uh, they'll dispatch uh, the members of the local Stasi to uh, to uh, monitor those people, if not uh, if not uh, uh, sanction them in some way. It's horrible. It's a horrible 
trend that has come up in this pandemic all over the country, uh, and and it needs to be called out. You know, you you mentioned earlier, uh, Colorado Governor Polis. You know, he said in his in his remarks about reopening his state, he encouraged people to snitch on businesses that weren't following his guidelines. Uh, that that's terrible. Businesses know how to, how uh, they need to keep their employees and customers safe, and and so do adults, and so do uh, people protecting their families. We don't need the government uh, to be knocking down our doors, and we don't need our neighbors to call the police in. One of the things that's so disturbing about this is that it encourages a police response to situations that don't require the police. And uh, as we all know, uh, when you get the police involved you know, there's an implicit threat of violence there automatically, and things might not always go well. You know, they often don't, Well, certainly in big cities. And it puts the police in a bad position, a a position a lot of police officers don't want to be involved in. You think they want to be running around uh, just uh, confronting people for not wearing, you know, a a mask? Exactly. And we've seen in some places the police uh, simply refuse to enforce those orders in Houston, the Harris uh, County Police and Sheriff's Office uh, uh, defied the local county commissioner, Hidalgo, uh, who tried to impose this thousand dollar fine per person for not wearing a mask. The police said, we're not going to do that. Uh, it's not constitutional and it's a waste of our time and it will destroy the relationship that we have with the community. Instead of handing out fines, we're going to hand out masks to people who aren't wearing masks, which was a great response, I thought. He is John Daniel Davidson, political editor at The Federalist, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly. John Daniel Davidson, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, flying off our conversation before the break with uh, John Daniel Davidson from The Federalist talking about the snitch culture. I want to get to um, this interesting piece uh, in The Wall Street Journal by uh, Matthew Hennessy. It's just reminiscent of this idea that, uh, as Arthur Schopenhauer observed, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed, then it's violently opposed, then it's accepted as being self-evident. Some of that is starting to happen with respect to those who saw COVID-19 and everything related as a nail and a lockdown as the hammer. Matthew Hennessy, unmasking the vice president. We didn't uh, talk about it earlier in the week, but uh, we'll talk about it now, given Matthew Hennessy's context, because I appreciate um, his initial reaction and then his thoughtful reaction. Initial reaction versus thoughtful reaction. That's why truth passes through three stages. You get an initial reaction, then you have a thoughtful reaction, at least among some, not all. Some will never cop to the truth, that's for sure. By the way, Hennessy is uh, deputy editorial features editor for the journal. He uh, starts out talking about all the controversy surrounding Mike Pence's visit to Mayo Clinic in Rochester without a face mask. The criticism of 
doesn't he understand how the message the message he sends doesn't you know note the optics of that he's the point guy for the white house coronavirus task force the guidelines say mask and he's not wearing a mask while touring the mayo clinic he's in a hospital setting for goodness sake matthew hennessy uh, writes i confess that was my first reaction too fear of getting sick coupled with frustration of being cooped up for weeks has aggravated my proclivity towards self-righteousness i'll ride my high horse hmm. are we becoming a nation of health skulls he asks neighbors are shaming each other on facebook and next door people are calling the cops on backyard barbecues Northeasterners are looking down their noses at the rubes in the rest of the country, more so than usual, that is. When my sanctimony subsided, I looked again at the vice president's maskless face. What message does it send? Mr. Pence is tested weekly for COVID-19. Even in non-pandemic times, the vice president's daily schedule is tightly managed, such that he rarely comes into close contact with anyone who hasn't been screened and vetted. He lives in the future we're all headed toward, where frequent testing and contact tracing are the norm. He isn't sick. And it isn't as if the Mayo Clinic was going to ask him to intubate someone. (laughs) Even if he were to have close contact with an affected person, nothing less than a full face medical respirator mask would protect him. Disposable surgical surgical masks like the ones worn by others in the photo uh, that that made the rounds uh, don't help the wearer. Why then should healthy people be required to wear masks in public at all? Yeah. Wearing a mask signals to your neighbors you are taking the pandemic seriously. It serves no medical purpose, but it lets the world know you care and a pox on those who don't care. I say that in a state that effective today is requires masks in public spaces or spaces where social distancing is not otherwise easy. But I appreciate uh, Matthew Hennessy's visceral reaction versus thoughtful reaction. The same with uh, Joe Nacera, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering business. Lockdown critics may have some valid points. Obviously, he was one of the lockdown proponents and a critic of the critics. He uh, said, um, I don't agree with every claim the critics make. Some go so far as to dismiss dismiss the value of social distancing, the importance of which has become pretty clear since the virus was was, uh, first identified. However, he does point out that the uh, critics are receiving uh, unfair criticism. And they have some valid points, unfair criticism, like they're willing to throw granny under a bus to uh, get back to work. It's nonsense. In point of fact, it's so interesting that that's the criticism. Wait a second. By what you've done, I mean, you're presiding over states where the majority of the deaths are people in nursing homes, elderly in nursing homes in Massachusetts. Uh, Plurality, if not majority, in New York State. 35% in Illinois. Your lockdown regime is producing those results, and you're going to lecture me about who cares for the elderly? But Jonah Sarah is more charitable. It's been said that lockdown critics are willing to sacrifice the elderly to more quickly develop herd immunity and defeat the virus. But the ones I've spoken to say just the opposite, that what the states need to do is put money and effort toward protecting the elderly and vulnerable and keeping them as far away from the virus as possible. That may be a tall order given the way society depends on facilities to care for the elderly, but it's not impossible. That's right. That's been the conversation here, hasn't it? And uh, then he goes to the other arguments that have been advanced that make sense to him. New York is not the rest of the country. You shouldn't have to treat the rest of the country based on the same measures being taken in New York City, for example. He references the uh, New York City emergency room, Doc Daniel Murphy, who had that uh, op-ed that went viral earlier in the week, talking about the secondary effects, both in terms of public health those not coming in who need health care 
because they have chronic heart conditions, because they have cancer, so forth, as well as just on the finances of hospitals, as we've talked about on this show often now. So, uh, again, the uh, visceral reaction and then the thoughtful reaction, the divide between the two. But it's nice to see some moving to the thoughtful reaction, if only more would. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The pension data that we routinely pour over, what underlies it? What underlies it is the number of governmental units we have, the most in the country, uh, the number of or the salary for the number of public employees at all levels of government. Obviously, that drives your pension payout. So you have to look at salaries, too, and say, is that fair? Is that financeable? Is that uh, a fair price to pay for the value that taxpayers receive when we talk about public sector salaries. Are they in line? And uh, to help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Angievsky. He is a CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com and a senior contributor to Forbes. His most recent piece out this week, Why Illinois is in Trouble, 109,881 public employees with $100,000 paychecks, which uh, totals out to about $14 billion annually. That's real money. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be on the program. Thank you very much for your interest in our work. So, I think what we identified yeah, is the Illinois $100,000 Club. There is a new minimum wage for an Illinois public employee, and it's hundred grand a year. Incredibly, 110,000 public employees and retirees exceed that threshold. And um, that's. do you have any, any perspective, uh, some context about what percentage of overall public sector employees that represents? So um, there are about, let's just go through this in real time. There's about three quarters of a million public mm-hmm. employees that are, that are active. Mm-hmm. And there's about, you know, my memory serves about 400,000 retirees. So that's a little over 1.1 million uh, public sector paychecks, whether they're currently working or retired in Illinois. Well, and that speaks to why why people understand why is this intractable? Why doesn't anybody have the courage to address this issue when everybody seems to agree that it's just it's it's not financeable? You just gave us the answer. One point one million, three quarters of a million active, 400,000 pensioners. There's your voting block, which uh, when you start to include their family members, tips the scale every time. Well, and, and that doesn't include the federal workers based in Illinois. So you got to add probably a couple hundred thousand um public sector paychecks on top of that. So you go through the local, state, and then you add in the federal, and all of a sudden uh, we start to look like a uh, third-world South American country. Well, and, and importantly, too, just additional context, uh, Illinois, I believe, is still the only, maybe Ohio, too, but but it's one of the few states in the Midwest that has more government employees than manufacturing employees. And when you say your manufacturing is your base and that's, you know, one of your key industries, agribusiness and manufacturing associated with that, but also manufacturing generally, and you have more public sector employees than you do manufacturer employees, that that speaks to the situation being out of whack. 
Well, well, Dan, I, I think that the number one manufactured product in Illinois is actually corruption. So I, I think this is a manufacturing problem. We're manufacturing and minting uh, public sector employees and conferring benefits that that were never, never going to be paid back. Uh, look, you know that Moody's uh, said that Illinois has a quarter trillion dollar unfunded pension liability. And we point out in this piece at Forbes that there's only 13 million people in the state. What that means is every man, woman, and child in the state of Illinois owes $19,000 just on unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, an average household income is 64 grand. If you're a family of four at $19,000 a piece, you owe $76,000 of Illinois unfunded pension liability. Dan, that exceeds your household income. We've crossed the Rubicon. There's no coming back. Don't bail out Illinois. This thing is unsustainable. Uh, I want to just go through some of these uh, uh, units of, uh, of government. Uh, you, as you break down in your piece in Forbes, uh, comparing public schools, the city of Chicago, you know, give us uh, break it down a little bit from the statewide numbers to some of the regional numbers. So we found tree trimmers in Chicago making up to 107,000 a year. You've got eight nurses at state corrections making over 200 grand, all the way up to $277,000 a year. You've got a power couple at the downstate Lewis and Clark College that probably nobody's ever heard of. Uh, together, they make uh, 733,000 a year with the junior college president, the husband making nearly 500 grand, and the wife making 233. You've got uh, over here at the University of Illinois in Chicago, you've got doctors making up to $2 million. And when they retire, you're on the hook for their pension. Dan, uh, you've got 111 small town managers who out earned every governor of the 50 states. That threshold salary was 202000 a year. Here, here's the thing. It's not only what you put in, what you get out. It's not only the uh, fact uh, or in addition to that, it's the fact that uh, by year four or five, most of these pensioners are making more than they made while working, even as you're reviewing how much they're making working. And let's use a Republican example on this. We've got former Illinois Governor Jim Edgar. He's kind of triple dipped the system. So he retires as governor and he spent time in the General Assembly, of course. And he's today he's got $176,000 a year uh, pension from the General Assembly and for being governor. He went to work at the University of Illinois. He spent 20 years there. It's a different pension system, so he draws another pension there from the U of I at 85000 a year. He retired from the University of Illinois, and he was hired back this time part-time so he can collect his pension. He gets another $63,000 a year. All told, this year, three sources, all taxpayer-financed, guaranteed, and paid for $324,000 a year. He is Adam Angievsky, CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com, senior contributor to Forbes. Uh, check out his piece at Forbes, Why Illinois is in Trouble, 109,881 public employees with $100,000-plus paychecks costing taxpayers $14 billion. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be on the program.
the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It's uh, all education theater, just as it's security theater, governance theater, sensible financing theater, always theater in Chicago. Uh, this time it involves Oprah. By the way, if you just on Chicago, if you want to understand Chicago, and you should want to understand it because we exported the Chicago model to D.C. back in 2008 when Barack Obama became president of the United States. And um, there are lasting effects to that, as you've undoubtedly seen. Watch the uh, the show City Hall with Kelsey Grammer as the mayor. It's about 10 degrees hyperbolic, but only 10. And there's a phrase that's used by the political class, the insiders in that show. Change on the outside to protect continuity on the inside. Change on the outside to protect continuity on the inside. That's what Chicago is. That's what so much of politics is, both parties. And so the triple threat, as she uh, as I've termed her, but she really termed herself when she said she's black, lesbian and female. That makes her a triple threat. That's what Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, said when she was running for mayor. She announced uh, thrilled and honored to have the one and only Oprah Winfrey. You get a car. You get a car. No, you don't get a car, but you do get her to uh, provide the commencement address for Chicago public school seniors. Obviously, this will be a remote commencement address but nonetheless by video oprah winfrey will provide the commencement address to chicago public school high school seniors i'll tell you what um that's great and i hope when she does so she reminds those seniors and the families that are watching that uh 13 years ago she gave up on the chicago public schools basically said it was hopeless uh and that's that's when she opened a girls school in south africa all her money, she can spend it wherever she wants. I'm not criticizing her. I'm just reminding people she gave up on Chicago, where she was still based at the time, and the Chicago public school system to open a school in, in South Africa. One of the things she said at the time, if you ask kids what they want or need in the U.S., they will say an iPod or some sneakers. iPod, you can tell how old that is. In South Africa, they don't ask for money or toys. They ask for uniforms so they can go to school. Well, she wasn't wrong about the sense of entitlement here. She just uh, maybe has forgotten that's what drove her to South Africa to open a school there in the first place 15 years ago. And perhaps she needs to be reminded that that very sense of entitlement in 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 uh, lieu of a demand for performance persists in Chicago today. Rather than watching Oprah uh, on a live stream, uh, watching Oprah on a live stream, giving a commencement address to Chicago public school seniors, I got a better idea. No safe spaces. NoSafeSpaces.com is where you can watch for a limited time only the number one political documentary of 2019. This is the documentary put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that tackles the uh, assault on free speech in America on college campuses, social media platforms, of course, Hollywood. For my listeners, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. Again, Dan Prof listeners, limited time, discount code SAFE25 is the code. For 25% off No Safe Spaces, which you can live stream at nosafespaces.com as many times as you want until the end of May. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The uh, controversy over how COVID-19 deaths are being recorded persists, even though, to be clear, the CDC has been clear. And so that has uh, filtered down to the state level, too. Uh, Dr. Zeke here in Illinois, the Department of Public Health, saying, um, hey, essentially conceding the point at a press briefing last week that you could jump off the Willis Tower hit the ground, the uh, medical examiner could find out you were COVID-19 positive, and that counts as a COVID-19 death because the CDC has promulgated rules for all to see. You don't have to test. If it looks like COVID-19, it is COVID-19. And uh, that has, as I said, filtered down to the state level where Prisker's administration has been similarly transparent. Now, I don't know that that has penetrated people's consciousness such that they look at the rolling tickers of the number of deaths, 63,000 plus in in the country at large now and discount that in their minds to some extent because of the comorbidities in the overwhelming majority of the deaths. I don't know if they do that or not. They promulgated rules about this specific virus and deaths associated with the virus. The question becomes, should we be making public policy based on the ticker of death or should we be breaking down those numbers so that we have texture to that number and then add texture to our public policy making. They want us to argue this issue of, you know, is that a COVID-19 death or a cancer death? They want us to argue that. So don't argue it. They want us to argue because it sounds like, oh, we're heartless and it doesn't matter. Somebody that they were COVID or they look like they were COVID and people died and we're in the business of saving lives. Me too. I'm in the business of saving lives best we can. And remember, it's not lives versus money. It's not lives versus data. And you don't save lives. You trade lives. It's some lives versus other lives. Nobody is saving lives except medical professionals like one at a time. Policymakers are trading lives. We're so bad at framing this conversation. We fall right into the trap that CNN and MSNBC and these uh, champagne Leninist governors like the one in Illinois want us to have. Stop it. Think through what they're trying to get you to do. And stop having conversations about important public policy and quality of life, as well as preservation of life on their terms. It is interesting to note, just in terms of effectiveness, that uh, Florida and Texas did everything wrong, right? And California did everything right. Texas and Florida, three deaths per 100,000 and six deaths per 100,000, respectively. California, five deaths per 100,000. No material difference. But Illinois and uh, Virginia and Michigan and North Carolina, an extension of a shelter in place were there till May 8th based on what based on politics. That's what Roy Cooper has to fall in line because, you you know, Jared Polis and Gina Raimondo, these are sort of independent minded Democrats. They don't have to follow the herd mentality. These other governors that are more reliant on the uh, party superstructure, they got to toe the line like Roy Cooper, North Carolina, by the way, New York state, to the point of the classification, deaths in New York State mid-March through mid-April, 
In 2019, deaths from heart disease, cancer, accidents, stroke, Alzheimer's, flu, homicide, uh, north of 12,000. Yes, mid-March through mid-April of last year. In 2020, the deaths from all of those conditions I mentioned is about 4,000. And COVID-19 is 13,000. Classifications. Okay, so we have the classification. Now the conversation begins. That's not the end of the conversation. And let's continue the conversation with William Briggs. He's statistician to the stars. He's a writer, a philosopher, itinerant scientist. Okay, very good. I like itinerant scientists. He's got a lot there. His uh, blog is wmbriggs.com. He joins us now. William Briggs, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Good to have you. And um, you uh, posted a piece this week, robbing the cemeteries to pad death totals, which is sort of what we were talking about. But give us the particular data points that uh, struck out to you with respect to the sort of robbing the cemeteries uh, observation. That's pretty much everything you said was uh, exactly on the money. Uh, the, the one additional point is to calculate, the, to really know these things, besides just looking at the death certificates, normally nobody knows how many people die of the flu each year. Just nobody knows that number because the flu is not coded on all death certificates. But we see every single winter season a spike in the overall death rates. And so what they do is they use a statistical technique called excess deaths. Very yes. morbid. Right. But, but they just fit a, a, a sine wave, this signal, this common signal to the peak that we see every year. And anything that sticks up above the model is classified as a flu death. And so what they're doing now is some professors at Yale said, you know, the models that predicted the number of COVID deaths said we should have it much worse by now. Yet the death tolls of those classified as dying from COVID, even though it's not dying from, it's dying with or dying with suspicion or just plain dying, they said, you know, that's not enough. We need to make up this gap somehow. So maybe it's the case that these excess deaths that belong to the flu, some of these might be better classified as coronavirus deaths. So that's what we're going to classify them as possibly. Now, I don't know if the CDC has taken that suggestion yet. It's out there. They might try to do that because, look, originally the forecast model that they made early on and back in uh, February was that 2 million Americans were going to die from this. Now, they never looked at this very carefully, but the people who made that model didn't even think it through. They said, in effect, if you adjust it by population and everything, that coronavirus was going to be deadlier than the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu killed anywhere up to, oh, 50 million people, plus or minus, across the globe in 1917. And somehow this virus was going to be deadlier based on no evidence except for assumptions that they put into a model. And then the government said, okay, well, we're going to believe that model. That model is true. And therefore, that model says if we lock down, we're only going to get roughly, oh, anywhere from 100 to 200 some deaths, 200,000 deaths, something like this. Okay. Well, that believes the model. The model says to do these, implement these activities, and we need to believe this model because the model was created by all these experts, and they're very smart guys, and they are. Therefore, the model must be true. Now they're going back and seeing that the model wasn't true. The model is a completely blown forecast, but they still believe the model because the model seems plausible to them. So on the excess deaths, it's interesting because we talked to a uh, 
a researcher from Leiden University in the Netherlands about this earlier in the week. He's doing excess death modeling, too. And we mentioned that Yale uh, study that you're referring to. There was a caveat in that Yale study, as you sort of, as, as I think you just indicated, which was this. Uh, we we're not sure, but, you know, it's kind of one of those. But you've got this New York Times piece, 46,000 missing deaths tracking the true toll of the coronavirus outbreak. The Yale researchers, the Netherlands researcher we talked to, unsurprisingly, the New York Times, are all suggesting the excess deaths, which we can't identify in terms of cause, are more likely than not to be mostly COVID. And so the death toll is actually much higher than is being reported and not much lower, as some are arguing. And I'll tell you why we know that's not true. This is the best statistic you can look at because we have this huge dispute. And, you know, there is suspicion over some deaths. Is it COVID or isn't? Who knows? Let's instead look at all deaths. So we're going to count all deaths. We're going to plot that up by week. The CDC has data available going back to early 2009. We could just look at that. We could plot those up. We do see the usual flu bump peaked around January, as it always does. But it dropped very abruptly. It wasn't a very big flu year. And then we do have a peak, a secondary peak forming in March and April that uh, is surely partly caused by coronavirus. There's no doubt that this virus kills. If you look at those data and compare it to historical times, the 2000, 2017, 2018 flu year was worse. It was worse. There were more people killed. No question. That's just here in America. The, the 2012-2013 flu year looks like it's going to be about equivalent to the coronavirus, and so with the 2014-2015 flu year, mm-hmm. it's going to be about equivalent. Not, not exactly. You know, the, the coronavirus will probably beat them, but not by much. And it doesn't look like it's going to beat the 2017-18. And that's only looking at data back through 2009. If you go back into, like, the 57, the Asian flu the, uh, the, the Hong Kong flu of 68, yeah. these were much, much worse, much worse, with no panic, no global panic, no lockdowns, no frenzy, no arguing about flattening the curve, never, not everybody losing their minds. And th- this is a very unique event. Not that virus, we get unique viruses every year, otherwise people wouldn't be dying of the flu every year. This is unique in the sense of the, the global reaction or the overreaction. He is William Briggs, statistician to the stars, writer, philosopher, and itinerant scientist. His blog, wmbriggs.com. William Briggs, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, pandemic projections. You mentioned uh, one I think is telling uh, yesterday in our conversation about uh, Elon Musk's William Wallace moment, uh, demanding that people be given their GD freedom back. Attendant to that was to his cri de corps was a graph he posted of projections for hospitalizations in California. You know, the modelers that Gavin Newsom, the governor, was using their April one projection their April 10 projection versus the actual data. April 1, by the way, the April 1 and April 10 projections, the modeling, you see the projections of a hospital bed occupancy going up at basically a 45-degree angle. The April 1 projection for May 1, May, by May 1, 50,000 hospital beds occupied. By April 10, 20,000. The actual data, which is a horizontal line 
since March 30th is about 5,000. So, you know, off by a factor of four, off by a factor of 10. And yet we're still in this uh, modality where some people uh, believe in the model over real world data. They have to in order to continue justifying their shutdowns. Uh, We see this with Gavin Newsom now going back and forth with respect to shutting down beaches and parks. We see it in Illinois. We see it in Michigan with Gretchen Whitmer today announcing an extension of the imprison in place order to uh, May 28th. These pandemic projections versus the actual data. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Jim Pinkerton. He is the co-chair of the Rate Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, per your piece in the American Conservative, uh, you're pulling your hair out over these uh, competing projections, just like uh, so many others are, including myself. Right. I mean, I in my piece, I dwelt on two of the most famous models, one from the Imperial College London and the other from the Institute for Health Metrics at the University of Washington, funded by the, the Gates Foundation. And the two, as you were suggesting about Elon Musk and his data from California, the two models pretty much say the opposite thing. Uh, the, the Imperial College model is extremely pessimistic, and the IHMB model is extremely optimistic. And so one is left to wonder, which one should we pick? Well, right. And, and the argument, of course, that's being advanced by politicians, they're not dumb in terms of covering their backsides, is to say, right, those models were way off. They were way over what uh, we're seeing in the real world. And that's thanks to the decisions that we made. Right. And the, the, the thing is, in our life today, computers and big data and Silicon Valley have, have so much prestige and deserved or not, that people say, oh, gosh, it's, it's a computer model. Uh, we have to you know, bow down and worship it, you know, when it's kind of reminded of the Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, they, the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, so the politicians, whatever they want to do, whether they want to you know, be open, like in Georgia, or closed, like in Michigan, they can point to a model that sort of gives them sort of a white coat prestige and, you know, authority to it. Yet, if you look at the models, you realize they just sort of say everything. And in fact, as I pointed out, according to Columbia University in New York, there's actually more than 1,000 models out there on, on, on the virus. So if you could throw a dart and pick whatever one you want, politicians should stand up and say, look, this is what I think is best. And if you like it, vote for me. If you don't like it, vote against me or protest or whatever. But this idea that we're going to wrap ourselves in, you know, computer ticker tape and make that the armor, uh, I I think is kind of fraudulent. And, uh, of course, as I pointed out, all this is, you know, on the virus, serious as it is, it's just an overture uh, to where we're going to wind up when we start trying to model or continue modeling climate change. You know, if, we, if, the, if the models have trouble figuring out you know, how many people are going to die tomorrow, then what are the chances they're going to get it right about the climate 100 years from now? Well, we have a pretty good idea because they've been getting it wrong for the last 40 years with respect to uh, climate change. But um, but but uh, on the models, see, there, there's something else going on I, that I, I see as well, which is the specific projections and predictions and then you know the arguments about what was projected and what actually occurred 
And then the general predictions about what will occur and then what's actually happening. And by general, for example, the media narrative was California did everything right, shutting down the state before it needed to. Right. That was ahead of the learning curve. They did everything right. Florida and Texas did everything wrong. Oh, my goodness. Ron DeSantis kept the beaches open. And oh, my goodness. He just opened Jacksonville Beach last week. Oh, my California deaths per 100,000, five per 100,000. Florida and Texas deaths per 100,000, six and three, respectively. Not statistically significant. The difference. Well, you're, you're right. I mean, and underlying this, of course, is the general sense that, look, if Trump has one position, then the media and also, parenthetically, the Democrats ought to have the other. So the IHME model from Washington State, which, again, is funded by the Gates Foundation, is not exactly a citadel of Trump <laughs> admiration. But the IHME model is sort of a little bit maybe optimistic. And they've been clobbered by all the other Washington Post had a big article attacking them the other day because they're too optimistic. And that's seen as somehow being pro-Trump. So, as you said, in California, you get one result. And that proves that the Democrats are right. And, and in Texas, they get the, the same result. But that proves the Republicans are wrong. It seems to me at, at this stage, or perhaps we're getting to the stage where the models are going to mean less and less because you have different states now, more than a dozen states, uh, moving to open up in substantial fashion, uh, you know, moving through the phasing of an opening up pr- pretty uh, quickly, it would seem. And so you're going to have competing models. And then when people see that uh, rapture did not come to Texas or, or, frankly, to Colorado, where there's a Democrat governor, they're going to say, well, I assume you think they're going to say, well, OK, my politicians are overreacting and uh, I'm seeing what's going on in other states. I, I don't see why I can't why we shouldn't be following the example of other states that are striking a different balance. Right. I mean, this is extremely challenging. I mean, we, we can't minimize 61,000 deaths at all and a, a worldwide pandemic. And we are hopefully going to start replacing models with an actual track record, and we'll be able to evaluate how countries, including the United States, of course, but also, you know, the European countries, you know, uh, plus South Korea and Taiwan and Japan and so on, we'll be able to step back and look and see what are the the common elements of a successful strategy on this and what are the common elements of an unsuccessful strategy. And I have no doubt that there's going to be a a 9-11 commission and a Pearl Harbor commission and a Warren commission uh, all rolled into one on this. And, and frankly, that's that's a good idea. We, we do need to learn from this, especially if, as you know, many people said, we're going to get a virus like this every three or four years. Whether or not the Chinese are cranking them out remains to be seen. But even if it's just nothing more uh, sinister than a, a, a nasty, you know, wet market in, in selling bats or something in, in, in Wuhan, China, we're still going to get these viruses. And so we, we darn well better uh, uh, learn the right lessons as well as, of course, work on the vaccine. But, but again, it'd be nice to be working from actual empirical data as opposed to just some hypothetical uh, computer run. He is Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Raid Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, yesterday's On yesterday's show, we had uh, Martin Kaldorf, who was a Harvard University medical professor on. And we had a bit of a conversation about uh, what's happening in Sweden and what he thinks of the Swedish model. Remember, uh, Kaldorf is somebody coming from the position that uh, the herd immunity is what we want to achieve. And those who are dismissive of herd immunity, like it's a concept in controversy when it's immunology 101, are actually costing lives, not saving lives. Here's what uh, Kaldorf had to say about uh, Sweden. Sweden is the, the country that has done most in terms of um, doing an age-specific countermeasures. So they are trying to protect all uh, people. They could have done even better, but they have done a pretty good job at it. Uh, but schools, elementary schools have been open. So they have not uh, closed down all of society and restaurants are open. So young people can go there while most of the old people are voluntarily staying away because they know they are at high risk. And uh, uh, even though schools have been open in Sweden, I looked a couple of days ago and there still has not been a single death among children in Sweden under the age of 20. So it doesn't put uh, children in danger. Uh, and they are uh, building up towards herd immunity. So probably Stockholm will be the first place to reach herd immunity for COVID-19. And so, so do you, do you, do you suspect that maybe Sweden, the Sweden model from beginning to end may turn out? I mean, I know this is a bit of an imponderable, but it's going, may turn out to be the best model or certainly uh, just as good as many countries who went the lockdown route immediately. So my guess is that it would be a better model because, they did it I specifically. They protected the older people while younger people uh, have been building up immunity. For more on this, we're now pleased to be joined by David Patton. He's a professor of industrial economics at Nottingham University Business School. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, you've uh, been following, at least from uh, what I see on Twitter, uh, the, uh, the uh, example that Sweden has set. And and uh, it's interesting to hear from a Harvard medical professor that he expects that uh, the Swedish model of, of focusing on protecting the vulnerable, the old and those with underlying conditions, but not uh, treating everyone in the same way so as to more expeditiously achieve herd immunity, which he suspects Stockholm might be the first to do. That's the way to go. Yes, it, it's interesting. And there's been a lot of debate about the implications of what Sweden have been doing and a lot of people worrying that um, death rates will be particularly high in Sweden. And, and there is some evidence that their, their death rates are higher than some of their other Nordic countries like Norway and Denmark, although part of that is to do with how deaths are measured because Sweden includes deaths in care homes in their figures. But more interesting is looking at what's happening over time. Um, and it looks like Sweden's deaths uh, peaked around about the, the 8th of April, and there have been a few ups and downs since then, and we have to be a bit careful because the figures are you know, sometimes backdated as, they, as more deaths get reported from, from some days ago. But the general trend seems to be down since about the 8th of April. So there's some evidence that even though people were worried there'd be sort of an explosion in the death rate in Sweden, that doesn't seem to have happened, at least not yet. But uh, looking at the, 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 the graphing of this, too, I mean, you see some ups and downs over the last 30 days. It's not, you know, straight up and straight down. It more looks like, you know, the chart of a of a public equity or something. There's peaks and valleys. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so that that's sort of uh, something that we that's important to note, it seems to me, because as uh, other countries or other states in America move to 
uh, a phased in reopening, you're probably going to see more peaks and valleys and you can't be too fatalistic with every peak and too optimistic with every valley. That's right. I mean, you do get lots of ups and downs on, on different days. And you have to be careful. Sometimes it's just when deaths are reported and announced. Sweden's quite, the data's quite nice because we do have data on the day people actually died. And that can, that can make a big difference to the ups and downs. Um, but I, I think it's quite hard when you look at the different approaches uh, people have had. So you take Sweden where you know, the, the people are social distancing, but um, you know, the bars are, are still open and primary schools are, for, for younger children are still open. Quite different to say in Denmark or in the, in the UK where all the schools are shut and the pubs are shut. And it's quite hard to find a real significant difference in the sort of trends of deaths over time. So in the UK, we're finding our deaths are now going down. They peaked around about the 8th of April, pretty much the same as, as Sweden. Possibly our deaths are going down a little bit faster than uh, than in Sweden. But there's certainly no strong evidence to say, well, um, you know, when you look at the different measures Sweden implemented, that there's been a sort of, uh, you know, their, their care system or their hospital system has been, has been overrun in any way. Uh, when we come back with David Patton, professor of industrial economics at Nottingham University Business School, I want to talk more about uh, what's happening in the UK as well as the EU more generally and what uh, that uh, area of the world might look like after the uh, pandemic has more substantially subsided. More with Professor Patton right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Professor David Patton, Professor of Industrial Economics at Nottingham University's Business School. And, Professor, you were starting to get into what's happening in England. Um, obviously, we were uh, all very concerned about uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and uh, when he uh, it was announced that he was infected and, and was seriously ill. Uh, good news there with his recovery. Uh, tell us a little bit more. Give us a little bit more handle on, on England's recovery as you were starting to uh, detail and also what the attitude is there about uh, phased-in reopening of some sort. Sure. Um, so there have been a lot of deaths in, in the UK, well, well over 20,000 associated with the coronavirus. It's hard to establish which deaths are caused by the coronavirus. But there, have been, there has been evidence of quite a lot of progress recently. So it looks like deaths in the UK peaked around about the 8th of April and have gone down quite considerably since then, although the data is a little bit hard to get hold of, we have very good data on hospital deaths, not such good data on deaths in elderly care homes. But all the evidence is there is now quite good progress being made. Of course, every death is still a still a tragedy, and there's a lot of concern about it still. But you can sort of see, um, you know, death, the daily death rate is probably more than halved or, um, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're still in a situation where there's a, a sort of formal lockdown and that, that people aren't meant to leave their homes except for certain reasons like exercise, going to food shops um, or to look after a, you know, a, a relative. It's not quite so strict as in some countries. So in France, for example, you have to download a sort of formal permission before you can leave the home. And that's not the case in, in the UK. Um, but the schools are shut. Most of the, sh- the non-food um, shops are shut. Uh, the off-licenses, which is our, our word for where you can go and get alcohol, they're, 
they're they're open. You can still um, use those uh, facilities. You can't uh, you can't can't use churches though, which is uh, quite an interesting uh, uh, difference. Yes. I, I think it, it you know there's some talk that, that there's going to be some lifting of measures next week and probably very uh, very slowly. I think in the first instance, I'd say that public opinion is pretty much in has been in favour of um, the current measures with you know, some notable exceptions. There's quite a lot of debate, some people thinking we shouldn't have gone into a full lockdown and um, other people saying, well, some of the regulations are a bit too strict or we should, you know, worried about the hit on the, on the economy. So there's quite a vigorous debate, but I think overall people are you know, reasonably, they're more worried about the health risks than worried about uh, an increase in deaths if some of these measures were, were to be relaxed. So it's interesting just looking at the, you know, how these are progressing and you look at the evidence around the world. So, for example, pretty much uh, all the evidence now suggests that young children are at very low risk of passing the virus on. So th- those places that have kept um, primary or ele- I think you would call it elementary schools open right. um, are not really causing any risk. That's a, that's a pretty safe thing uh, to do. Um, in fact, some of the you know seen the sort of survey of evidence yesterday suggesting that they haven't been able to find a single case where a very young child under the age of ten has transmitted the infection to somebody else. Doesn't mean it's never happened, but they haven't found the evidence. Well, and that's what years. that's what you heard Professor Kaldor from Harvard say about uh, Sweden: zero deaths uh, under the age of twenty in, in a school setting. Uh, you. You have Norway and Denmark moving to and Israel, for that matter. Uh, I, I believe uh, maybe uh, kindergarten in Israel, but regardless, they're uh, moving to uh, open uh, elementary and uh, and pre-K schools for that very reason. That there's every reason to believe it's safe, and you start you have to start uh, being willing to do things that are safe, much less risky. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and it actually is quite a sort of momentum there. So it's also in. in the Netherlands and Holland, they're doing the same in quite a number of countries. We'll see whether that's going to happen in the UK. I think that's an obvious measure which, you know, would be safe. But I think the fact that it's safe doesn't mean that public opinion quite realise or understand it's yeah. safe. So I think it's sometimes harder to sell it to the public and teachers who, you know, understandably are worried about their safety and also if they're living with vulnerable people, they don't want to be passing the virus on. On the other hand, I think sometimes governments have got to, have got to take a bit of a lead where the um, health and medical evidence is reasonably clear, as it seems to be in in in, in that case. Of course, nothing what, is completely risk free. As a, a professor at a university business school, um, what's uh, what are the prospects or concerns for how higher education in the UK will change coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of worry in in our universities, um, like like in the states, we have a huge number of students coming from overseas, from China, India, and all sorts of countries, and. Um, you know that that's clearly under uh, under threat at least for the for the next year. I, I think uh, you know universities have responded like like, like everywhere, moving lots of um, learning onto sort of blended. In other words, a mix of online and face to face learning, um, and you can see that sort of carrying on in, into the future. I think that in the, in the long run, um, you know, there's still going to be a demand for international education and um, I think we're relatively optimistic but I think there's going to be some really bumpy roads ahead in terms of the financial situation for universities and colleges in, in the UK and I suspect uh, you know, that, that'll be true across the world because you know, if, if, for example students from China don't, are worried about travelling um, that's going to be a big hit to, uh, to universities' incomes. You're a uh, industrial economics professor and so uh, give us a, a bit of a handle on um, the economy in, in Britain 
and what are some real concerns in terms of trying to rebound economically from the shutdown? Yeah, I mean, like everywhere, there's been a really big hit to the economy. The approach the UK government has taken is to sort of try and um, put parts of the economy into hibernation. So they've, they've got a sort of what they call a furloughing scheme where the government subsidises the wages of employers, employees sorry, uh, on the condition that uh, companies don't actually lay them off. They, they put them you know, sort of to one side for, for a couple of months, the idea being that uh, you know, if things get back to normal, the firms can rebound very quickly, that the, the employees will still be in place and employees will still have money to spend. Now, I think that that's not a bad approach and it can work if you've got this really short um, shock, you know, so the economy shut down for a few weeks. Well, you know, we've been shut down for getting on two months now, a little bit less. So I think we're probably reaching the limits of that sort of process and where you might worry about much longer term and fundamental problems with the economy, both in terms of the private sector business, but also in terms of the tax revenue that will be coming in and therefore funding of infrastructure and public services um, going, going forward. So I think that, you know, there's sort of a twin concern there, both private companies going out of business and the particular sectors really affected travel, tourism and so on, and then how governments are going to afford to to actually help the private sector get out of um, the, the, the inevitable recession over the next few years. He is David Patton. He's a professor of industrial economics at Nottingham University's Business School. Professor Patton, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Take care. you'll know this is the Dan Prof show welcome back to the Dan Prof show and uh, President Trump had uh, this to say about the prospects that uh, he would find a place for General Michael Flynn in his administration if uh, Flynn is exonerated by uh, a federal judge or perhaps maybe even if Trump is uh, prompted to uh, grant him an outright pardon. You said that Michael Flynn would come back uh, even bigger and better. So are you going to pardon him? And if so, are you considering to bring him back into your administration? Well, it looks to me like uh, Michael Flynn would be exonerated based on everything I see. I'm not the judge, but I have a different type of power. Uh, but uh, I don't know that anybody would have to use that power. I think he's exonerated everything. I've never seen anything like it. What they did, what they wrote, you see this, General. You wouldn't want this happening to you, what they did to General Flynn. And uh, it's just uh, disgraceful. So, you know, I guess we'll get to that maybe someday or maybe not. Hopefully we won't have to get there. Well, would you consider bringing him back into your administration? Well, I think he's a fine man. I think it's terrible what they did to him. It's something that nobody's asked me, but uh, you're asking me for the first time. I would certainly consider it, yeah. He'd consider it, yeah. That'd be interesting. That'd be a nice piece of uh, vindication. Uh, And that uh, brings us to a fitting way to end the week. Uh, Our uh, resident poet laureate, a gentleman who operates under the gnome de plume R.A. Droit, see what he did there, uh, has uh, penned some verse on the General Flynn matter. Are you ready for this poetry slam? Just four days after Trump's inaugural day, some Comey goons just happened Michael's way. They chanced to meet him in the corridor, 
and bade him chit-chat for an hour or more. That The general, not suspecting, said okay, and life for him was different from that day. No idle chat was Comey's plan for Flynn. The goons had come intent to question him. The meeting was arranged with corners cut, and no one told Flynn he could lawyer up. In public, later, Comey would admit that trapping Michael was a clever trick. The trumpet admin was wet behind the ears, and so we caught the general unawares. Despite their sleight of hand, the FBI could not ensnare the general in a lie. Though Michael Flynn did not prevaricate, the FBI would still investigate. And later, Mueller, with his biased band, put General Flynn through more than he could stand. The deep state, the deep state said he'd lied to FBI about his convo with the Russian guy. To make their case, they changed the 302, which summarized the general's interview. They also told Flynn they would prosecute his son if he refused to allocute. His son in peril and his coffers drained, the general saw the one option remained. He pleaded guilty to a phony crime, a hero now synonymous with slime. Very, very good, R.A. Droid. Thank you so much for that. Thank you all for joining us on this installment of the Dan Prof Show and all week. We appreciate it. Have a great, safe, sane weekend and join us here uh, back on Monday. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.